There are no pressing announcements. Just the praise, of course, that we got some moisture. Hopefully it wasn't too dangerous for you. We have the call to worship. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. Let us pray. before our God above and sing hymn 303. continue to praise you throughout all our days, Lord Almighty, with our lips and especially, God, with our hearts. We're grateful, Lord, for your word and the gospel and the truth therein, and again, for this opportunity uh, to honor you, Lord, here as we gather as your people in public worship. Be with us as you promised in your word, God, and may we draw nigh unto you by the blood of Christ as you give us more of your spirit. We pray all these things in accordance to the Lord's prayer. Our Father 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the be seated. We have the responsive reading inside the hymn. Insert. Psalm 129, and it's good to read the Word of God. Let us read it responsively. I'll read the bold face. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say, The plowers plowed upon my back, they made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous, he has guided Jesus, the course of the wicked. Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be as the grass and hot spots, which withers before it grows up. With which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. Amen. Let us pray. Our God, we come before you. We are gathered here, Lord, thinking upon you and wishing to direct our mind, will, and emotions upon you and your wonderful works for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your great love in particular and your patience towards us as you guide us in our lives, God above, as you preserve us and what we have around us, Lord, and our possessions and protect us, God, daily. As we think of our travels, some of us had to go through some slippery snow, Lord. You were there, and you were guiding us and watching over us all the days of our life because of your great mercy and your compassion. May we meditate upon that. May we stand in awe, God. It may it melt any hardness of our heart, any distractions from this world, any fear, trepidation upon our soul. Precious God, we think in particular thankfulness that we have a day of rest. We have a time and the freedom here in this nation. We think in particular God is those who wish to take away that freedom uh, to worship you on your day, to publicly worship you, not to hide in a corner uh, the truth of your word and our convictions of you, God, and that you would hold back any such forces in this nation, Lord, that would undermine that for Christians. And Lord God, in particular, we think of not just the wonderfulness of you that is sufficient, God, to draw us unto you, we pray. But at times, Lord, we see our sins, we dwell much upon our transgressions of your law. We've been selfish, we've been coveting, we've been lying, and other such violations, God, of your word, somehow, in some way, perhaps this week. These things, Lord, hold us back, distract us. May we, God, not fall into the pit 
of sin over and over in the sense of God of dwelling upon it, fleeing back to it, but rather God fleeing away from it, crying out strength and mercy, Lord, for we will sin, we will struggle, God. We pray that you would continue to give us more of your spirit, that we, your people, as though even though we may fall down six times, we get up the seventh time. Gracious Lord, as we meditate upon you in your glorious gospel, may it sink into our hearts that you love us with an everlasting love, and you've promised to wipe away all our sins, and indeed have done so through Christ Jesus. We are called to daily repent of our violations of your word, and you tell us your mercies are new day by day, and so we can call upon you, God, to assuage our consciences. We think, Lord, not only of ourselves, but of each other, to exhort one another unto good works, and to help one another do our duty both as individuals, as singles, as couples, as families, God, to continue to have that love, to have the proper submission and responsibility that we have in those relationships, God. We pray that your spirit continue to move through us as we read, meditate upon your word, and apply it to our lives and our duties and responsibilities as couples and as families, Lord, with with and without children. We think of our extended family as well, our grandparents, grandchildren, uncles, and nephews and nieces, God, to the extent that we have some kind of relationship with them, God. They are part of our family, and we wish to pray for them, for their salvation, if they are not saved, for their deliverance and protection, God, if they are dealing with difficulties in their life, both body and especially for their souls, Lord. We think of those who are Christians, God, that it's a double blessing to have them as part of our biological family, that we would continue to pray for them, even if we have disagreements with them, God, that we would have patience and they with us. Lord and Savior, in this day and age in which the families are ripped apart and singleness is becoming the norm and separation and isolation from family, the extended family, which was historically part of the family for thousands of years, is running rampant and it can be a a bad effect upon us one way or the other. We ask God that we can overcome these things with continued love and understanding to do what we can and our responsibilities and love for one another and our families. We lift up our efforts in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It's certainly not just our own, but, Lord, it's the church that we are dedicated and covenanted to, Lord. We give our funds for many things. We think of the foreign missions efforts, the missionaries there in Africa and Europe and Asia and elsewhere. Those men and their families, God, would be protected from the difficulties in those countries, whether they be revolutions, whether they be intrigues, whether they be uh, difficult neighbors. And certainly, God, the more common problem, I'm sure, uh, for especially for new missionaries to understand the culture better, to get in, acclimated, to adjust their expectations, Lord, to understand how to interact with the natives, both their family, God, and their wives and their children. And, Lord, we ask that you would give them the strength they need, that they would stand, Father, above, upon your word, especially the pastors, as they preach to the foreigners, so they can establish local churches, can raise up a new denomination, we ask God, in these places. Give them the wisdom they need to know where to go, to find the people, to influence them, to speak of your truth, God. Give them the courage. Wherewithal, we ask confidence in your word. And Lord, we, have, we pray that they, we ask the committees involved and those who give funds, either local churches or presbyteries as well, not just the General Assembly, would, again, be united in their goals and their particular applications. We can have disagreements, God, in exactly where and how and how much funds at times, Lord. And may we submit in brotherly love to one another in these regards. And above all, to have guidance by your word and sanctified common sense 
to apply what we can to give the support, the protection, and the provisions needed for these missionaries. And Lord, we pray for our own state, God above, that we would continue to have good laws and health, health, healthy laws uh, for our body and for our collective protection and the like. And Lord, may we have competent leaders. This is certainly as a state and even as a nation, we have so much wickedness. We don't deserve such leaders, God, but we pray and urge these things. One, Lord, for the sake of your people, that they can be protected and be given uh, provisions for their body as the mayors and the governors and the like are involved in these matters. And God, also, secondly, because of our love for our neighbor, we want the best for them as well. And God, especially for the salvation of their souls. And Lord above, we pray not only for our leaders and our laws and to undermine the wicked ones. We think of our police officers, we think of the medical profession, the firemen and the like, that they, Lord, would continue to be able to be provisioned and supported by the magistrate, that they would have competency therein so they can take care of us. And we think in particular, God, of the Christians in those career fields and how difficult it is and the odd hours and the heinousness and the terrible things they witness in their life of the body and of crimes and such things, Lord, and the police and medical in particular we think of, that would not be a drain upon them, but rather they would be a good witness to those around them, that the unbelievers would see with their eyes. They cannot deny if they watch the news of the wickedness, the inherent wickedness of mankind. And Lord, point them to the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And lastly, Lord, we're thankful for the weather. We pray for more moisture that we need uh, for the spring runoff in particular, God, for the farms and the like. And again, protection and give us wisdom, Lord, uh, to realize perhaps if we're a little, time has slipped by us a little more than usual and we have to be a little more careful in our travels. We thank you, God, that you continue to protect and watch over our our driving. We've not had accidents. We think also, Lord, as well, for our economy, for the pricing of things continue to go up, which is especially harmful for young families and poor families alike, that you would help them, God, to overcome uh, these shortcomings in their income one way or the other. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, come upon you. We cry upon you. We are gathered here as your people praying for more mercy, praying for more strength, praying for more wisdom in our lives, and thankful above all to have this opportunity to worship with you all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by his blood. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings.
heavenly host, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Again, God above, we are your people and we are the sheep of your pasture, and you've blessed us, Lord, in so many ways, and may these tithes and offerings uh, redound back to your glory and be used for the expansion of your kingdom, we pray. Amen. While we are standing, let's go ahead and sing Psalm 147, verses 1 through 4, 147b. We have the reading of the Ten Commandments, found in the green insert in the back of the hymnal. 
Ten Commandments. Summary of God's Law. Let us read it together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to our Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 and following. Mark chapter 10, 35 to 45. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want? me to do for you. And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that 
those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let us pray. And so, Lord, as we read these words, they remind us, God, to put aside our pride and conceit, to go about the responsibility you've given us, God, to serve, and that is to work and use the power that you've given us in your kingdom and in our lives to help one another. May this, Lord, the sermon help us, I pray, encourage us to keep doing this in our lives. In your precious name we pray, amen. In this and the prior verses, Mark prepares his audience for the final and greatest act of Jesus and Messiah, his suffering death. We already went over the suffering and death in some detail in the prior sermon, in those verses before this. Now in these verses, we get some of the same points of Christ's earthly mission, but through a different route, the pride of the apostles. Even as Jesus answers their question and redirects it back to their lack of humility, he directs the whole discussion to what? In verse 45, his mission on earth. To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark highlights Christ's mission to bring the kingdom through faith and repentance. But as we near the end of the book and the end of Jesus' ministry, we read more of Christ's role in ushering this kingdom because eventually we'll get to Golgotha. He is living and he is dying for his own. So let's look more carefully here to learn about the greatness of serving in the Father's kingdom as Christ is himself the great exemplar for this. The first point here, the proudful request, verses 35 to 37. The proudful request. (laughs) I have in my notes here, slow learners. This is astounding when you read this. Uh, To me, I guess, if we slow down and realize... There, but for the grace of God, we would be. That he has indeed humbled us enough that we can read this and kind of snicker like, what are they asking? Wow. We'd probably do the same thing, I suppose. In the prior events, Jesus emphasized humility, as you recall. He took a covenant child, he directed their attention to that child, and said, be like this child. Be humble. Know your place in God's kingdom. That's what humility is. But it wasn't enough. They bring up this request which seems to scream out, we missed the point <laughs> of humility. It's an amazing request, to be sure. Matthew Henry says, James and John conclude, if Christ rise again, he must be a king. And if he be a king, his apostles must be peers. And one of the, the, these would willingly be the primus paregni, that is the first peer of the realm. He would be exalted with the great king. As you know, even in the fables and stories that we've read, the king has his favored, and those who are close in his court and the like. This is what they're requesting. In your glory, they say. In your glory. When it's finally revealed. They kind of skip over his suffering here. And even the resurrection, which is astounding, because before they were offended, Peter was offended, as you recall, in these matters. And now they just jump to the end point, as it were. I skip all this middle stuff. This is great at the end. He's going to be in charge. His glory, his manifestation before the whole world. Can we have a part in this kingdom, a high part? And so here, looking at the context of the question, Jesus earlier had told them, to give up all that they had to follow him and that they would have a blessing a hundredfold. 
And then here, of course, in their response to him, they said, could we have a little bit of that hundredfold now? I think it's perhaps going through their mind. But whatever the case is, they missed the point in many regards. It's a presumptuous request. I can't imagine asking it. As I said, I think most of us couldn't, but then at the same time, we realize that God has humbled us. Further, they may have also taken Christ's comment about the resurrection and inferred that the kingdom would not pass away, as I read by Matthew Henry, and it was an opportunity here to glorify themselves. So it really comes down to, I believe, no matter what rationale we may think and explaining what, where, where this came from, because it could be in our mind when we first read it, where did this question come from? This is out of the blue. Resurrection, he will triumph, he's a king, there's a kingdom. They ask, in your glory... Who can sit on your left hand or your right hand in your glory? Verse 37, recognizing he's not fully manifested now in his kingship. So it's not out of the blue, but at the same time, it is unreasonable and it's presumptuous. And you can see that fact by Christ's response to them and what he highlights, the importance and significance of serving one another. And so here we have verses 38 to 40, the second point, the primary response of Jesus, the bulk of the response, as it were, but Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. And continues, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? You are ignorant, he's saying in verse 38. You guys don't know what you're talking about and asking. It may seem obvious, but to be exalted with me, you're going to have to suffer. He's described this through two metaphors, drinking the cup and the baptism by which he was baptized with. The drinking of the cup in verse 38. The cup of royalty, of course, is given by the king to those close to him to show and display before the courts his preference to them. But of course, here, Christ is taking this imagery of drinking a cup from the Old Testament judgment passages of Isaiah and Psalm and everywhere else where it talks about the cup of judgment. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red for the wicked, Psalm 75, 8. Jerusalem had, as we read here in Isaiah 51, 17, they had drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. And we know the imagery elsewhere in the Psalms where he treads upon uh, the grapes to make more wine of judgment for the nations. That's what Christ is referring to, judgment and suffering and the like. That this is the cup that I am drinking now and will drink shortly. Can you drink that cup, Jesus says? You want to be with me in this kind of glory? This is how you get to glory. Through suffering. My suffering, of course, and his, his suffering, that is God's suffering in Christ Jesus in particular, Jesus in particular. Baptism here, he switches them uh, to this other word, uh, to drink the cup that I drink, verse 38, and, be, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. A little awkward to say that real fast. Three times, baptism. Baptism, baptism. Obviously here, Jesus does not mean by baptism, immersion. He was not immersed anywhere from here on out. Even if you believe the word baptism means immersion, in the case of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John the, bapti- John the Baptist or baptizer, clearly it doesn't mean that here. He never gets wet. He's not immersed in anything. The word means, as you recall, to be put under the influence of. They were baptized into Moses, we read in 1 Corinthians 10. They're put under his authority, his rule, 
and his guidance. And so Jesus uses the word here to describe his suffering. He's put under the suffering, baptized, or put under the influence of judgment and suffering for his people. Baptized with this heartache, this difficult, this mission to put under that influence, to be overwhelmed, as how some commentators describe it, which is indeed the case. Now, their response is quite amazing. If we, verse 39, Jesus explains this to them, and perhaps they didn't quite understand the metaphors, although I can't imagine, but then what do I know? They said, We are able. Sure, no problem. Apparently, they didn't bat an eye. They're willing to go as far, apparently, in their mind as necessary to sit on the left hand and on the right hand of Jesus. We are able. We can do it. And it seems, I think, without full understanding, as we know before. The disciples were so confused in so many regards, and part of that being their upbringing and the lies being taught by the Pharisees and the half-truths and their culture at the time. Maybe they even thought the cup and the baptism were good things, of the coming of the the kingdom of God. But we know in this context, as he highlights here and the rest of his life, they're in the context of suffering, of taking the burden of God's people upon his shoulders. And Jesus agrees with them. Often Jesus says no to them, or he takes the conversation elsewhere. Here, interestingly enough, he seems pretty direct. He says, okay, I'm going to answer it. He asks a question, I'll respond. He responds. And he says, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. It's going to happen. You say you're able? Whether you're able or not, Jesus is saying, it's going to happen. Now, of course, it's not exactly the same, because Christ's suffering, the drink that he drinks, and the baptism with he is baptized with, is his death and suffering efficaciously, as our representative, as our second Adam. The apostles aren't going to go through that at all. Theirs is, as it were, a mini-suffering, their own suffering, just being a part of God's kingdom and following the leader and the king. As Jesus says elsewhere, if they hate me, they're going to hate my followers. That's the kind of suffering they're going to go through, as we know, for their sanctification, whereas Christ's suffering and his death and his baptism and the drinking of the cup of judgment and suffering is for his people, not for himself. He is a spotless Lamb of God. We read of the cup of the suffering... The expression of this passage, the fulfillment, you will indeed drink this cup of judgment and suffering and the baptism of suffering and heartache and difficulty in your life in the book of Acts, where they were lied to and about and harried and harassed, beaten and stoned, and some, like Stephen, died as martyrs. He was baptized with death. And of course, others died of old age, like John the Apostle. Apostle of love. He's the one that lived the longest and died on the island, the prison island of Patmos. Jesus continues here in verse 40. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. So his answer, and again, he is answering, having a back and forth and not redirecting the conversation elsewhere quickly like he typically does. He's saying, I'm not going to give you an answer. You're going to be left in the dark. Christ the Messiah, the God-man, is not handing out positions in the kingdom of God, he's saying here. These positions of honor, 
especially sitting at the right hand, as you know. The right is the hand of privilege. It's the position of privilege. And the left is second best. And people are like, I want second best if I can't get the best. Either one we'll be happy with. We're close to our Lord. These were prepared beforehand. Jesus gives them an answer, and the answer is, you're not going to know. It's already been prepared. And then the proper reaction that he gives them, he expands upon his answer, he gives them that answer they requested. They probably didn't like that. And he goes further with it to explain the way they should have been moving and asking and living in their lives. The proper reaction, verses 41 to 45, the third point. And when the ten heard it, right, the other apostles, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. (laughs) What are you doing? What kind of a question is this? Could have been, we want those positions. Or they were angry with their haughtiness and forgetting them. You're off on your own. What makes you special? We don't know exactly, but it doesn't really matter for our purposes. These unhappy cohorts were greatly displeased, which is a nice way of saying they were probably quite agitated about this matter. And Jesus knows what's going on. He takes this opportunity now to teach them a lesson, as he typically does when he has a conversation with them. Verses 42 to 44. And Jesus called them to himself and says to them, gathers the twelve around, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. So, and Jesus is describing this, tells us the error in which he is trying to snuff out not just a random interesting conversation he's having he's dealing with their problem they apparently had a problem of lording over others this is one way remind you again to understand what is being corrected in the bible is exactly what the writers are correcting at that moment because sometimes you have a confusion in the matter or perhaps you apply it too broadly in the case we shouldn't apply it too broadly i'll talk about that in a bit and so he takes this opportunity to expand his original point he answered the question Continues on to explain about suffering, the cup of judgment, and that those who want this position has already been decided upon beforehand. He's not going to tell them. And now he digs deeper into this, using the Gentiles as an illustration, as a negative example of what not to do. Don't follow that path. Don't be an arrogant leader or lording it up over people. It's an interesting word here. To exercise dominion for one's own advantage. So from that description, that can be somewhat subjective in the sense of these two same leaders in the church could be doing the same activities, but one does it for his own personal gain in his heart and his mind. That's what he's thinking. The other person isn't, although they could be doing the same thing. We have to be aware of that. So people can hide this, in other words. But I don't think he's going that direction. Because it wasn't hiding it in the case of the question, and Jesus thought it wasn't hidden. He's exposing it. That is, he's making it more clear what was obviously there before them. Acts 19.16 gives us an example of this same word. It's quite interesting. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on, on them, excuse me, he leaped on them, and overcame them, that's the word to lord over. And prevailed against them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Catch that? So there is an outward expression, I think, of this idea of lording it over somebody and 
those who have a position of authority lording it over others. In other words, there are various and sundry ways of expressing arrogance and self-conceit in the position of leadership, of presumption and lack of humility by lording it over others. So the ways of lording it over others, one is negatively, a lack of compassion and mercy regarding circumstances where you treat every situation the exact same instead of realizing, well, this person is more ignorant than the other person, and so we have to adjust accordingly in terms of our discipline or our encouragement or whatever the case is in position of authority dealing with those under them. And perhaps you've seen that in your own life or struggle with it. Uh, I've seen it and struggle with it at times, not realizing or being quick to ignore anything related to the matter at hand. So there's a lack of compassion. Or quick to remind people you are their leader. <laughs> I'm your boss, shut up. I've seen this uh, on social media. It's quite amazing. It was a short discussion. At the very end, the guy's like, be quiet, I'm a pastor, and if you keep talking this way, I'm going to throw the ninth commandment at you. We're just having a disagreement, brother. I don't understand. We can't have a disagreement. Everything has to be reduced to the ninth commandment violation. This is bizarre. That's lording it over. That's an abuse of position of authority. And, of course, using authority for selfish gain. And we have a hint of that here in... Jesus' description of the Gentiles, he doesn't get very detailed because he knows they know what he's talking about. They see it around them. Those who consider rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, uh, presumably because they wish them to do things for them. I'm your boss. Go ahead and do these things, even if they aren't your job necessarily, or whatever the case is. Because he highlights here, you're supposed to be a servant. You're supposed to use the authority you have to help other people, not just turn around and say, I'm not going to do anything for you. You've got to do it all for me. That's lording it over. That's clearly the case, what's, whatever the particulars are going on here, because Jesus is highlighting the opposite. It's not about what people can do for you, what you can do for them. Although, of course, people should do something for your boss, for your leader, and for Jesus. When it says here in verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, Jesus isn't saying, don't serve me. Okay, apostles, run off on your own. You don't have to serve me. I didn't come here to be served. He's highlighting right a relative contrast again, right? I'm emphasizing a point. We must remember this. To take it, as it were, literally, is to miss the point. He's speaking more or less proverbially and hyperbolically to emphasize the importance of serving one another. And Jesus came to literally die for his people. That's serious service. He's not saying, well, now that I'm here on earth, you 12 apostles don't have to listen to serve me. You can just ignore me. It's not his point, obviously. And same with any church office or anybody in a position of authority for that matter. And then lastly here, not just using authority uh, for selfish gain. Give it all to me. I don't have to do anything for you. I'm your leader. I'm your king. I'm fat, dumb, and happy here on my throne. Bow before me. People do that. It's the most gross, obvious violation, but it happens. Or manipulation of others because of leadership prestige. See what I am? I'm the elites. We see this over and over again with the Pharisees, and Christ hammers against that. Over and over. Now, as a side note, and you know I do this now and then to remind us that these texts can be abused, the phrase loading over somebody can be abused as well to simply, I don't like what you're doing, you must therefore be loading it over me. I've seen that a lot. You're like, well, no, you're just having a disagreement here. Or in this case, in the case of the church leadership, they are supposed to apply it, and they're supposed to make a decision, and that's the decision they made. Is it inherently wrong? Well, no. If it is, say what it is. But people tend to, I think at times, sometimes people tend to 
make it more subjective. Well, I think you are doing, well, you don't know my heart. So I said it at the beginning. You could do this in your heart and have the same exact activity between one who's not doing it for selfish gain and another for who is. So you have those two dimensions there, the internal and the external, of course. So in other words, to sum it up here, Christian leaders are not to be seeking praise and self-ambition and abusing their office so that people serve them and they don't get to serve anybody else. Which is basically saying they're not doing their job because they're supposed to serve other people. (laughs) But whoever desires, he continues on here, to become great among you, Jesus says, shall be your servant. And whoever you desire to be first shall be slave of all. If you think about it, I hope it's obvious, he's speaking in a proverbial manner. He often does this. The rabbis, in fact, speak this way often, short, pithy ways of speaking to highlight a point. And I've overused it. I should find a new one, I suppose, but it's one we all know, I'm pretty sure. An apple a day keeps the doctor at bay. <laughs> no one literally takes it that way. I've got to eat apples and nothing else. It's shorthand for having a healthy lifestyle. That's it. And Jesus is speaking shorthand or a proverbial manner here to an audience of disciples quick to seek gain and prestige. To slap him about the face, verbally. And thus, as a proverb, it's not to be taken in the wrong sense of, look, the ruling elders need to clean the toilets to prove their servants. People have done that. I've heard Dr. Coppice had that problem early on in his ministry. We want to see how humble you are, Pastor. Okay. He probably did it when he was younger. Many of us have. Rather, they are to use the power of their office for the good of others. That's the point. He didn't say stop being a leader. That's not the point here. It's a proverb. But as a leader, you're supposed to take that power God has given you and help other people. Support them, serve them, work for them. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what Christian service is in his kingdom. And also means taking abuse from the sheep at times. You do it from your kids once in a while. You put up with some things, especially when they're older. You wouldn't put up with a four-year-old, for example. We see this in Christ, who was their leader while on earth, yet still a servant to others. He led. He didn't say, well, you know, I'm a servant to everybody else, so they've got to tell me what to do. That's obviously not what he's saying when he says, I'm a servant of all. He's saying, I have this power God has given me, and I'm going to use it for my sheep. Verse 45, for even, he gives us reason. Let me explain to you why I'm speaking this way. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was a leader in Israel. He was a rabbi. That's what he was called. He did not teach and heal out of self-conceit, self-aggrandizement, pride, out of desire of fame and prestige for the crowds. They even turned on him eventually, as we know. Rather, his mission, his focus was to save his people, even if that meant being trampled upon and hated. That is servant leadership a phrase that's been used often in the churches over the last decades or so, to use the responsibility and authority God has given you for the good of others. In Christ's case, of course, it was the greatest good, the saving of souls. I cannot save your soul. You don't want me trying to save your soul. Only Jesus can. He took that power to save your soul, to overcome sin and Satan and death, to give his life a ransom for many and to give his life in place of his church, even if that meant suffering and heartache and abandonment, as even his own apostles left him. In other words, being a servant is using the authority again. 
Christ had authority over sin, Satan, and death. But in other places, he didn't fully exercise it. There's a time not to exercise authority as a leader. And when I mean at the church, I also mean parents as well. But this is especially for the church, of course. Jesus kept his mouth shut before Pilate, didn't he? He had every right before God as an innocent party to defend himself. But he had a greater purpose. Sometimes being a leader means not exercising something for a greater good. How to serve others. What does this look like? Again, I'm including parents here and anybody in position of authority in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not the church. It should not be identified with the institutional church because you could lose the institutional church. It could be nuked out of existence and all your elders are dead, but you're still a Christian. And wherever you are is God's rule over you. And if, wherever you are in your life, you have a position of authority. Even older kids have a position of authority over the younger kids. They're supposed to be examples. They're supposed to help the younger kids below them. We all know this. And so, we do it by teaching. Christ taught, 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 kept teaching all the time. Even difficult people. You turn the other cheek. You let them be difficult, and you keep talking to them. Jesus did this over and over again. He kept talking to the Pharisees and the crowd. Even his own apostles. They keep bringing up these harebrained questions. Reprimanding, of course. Christ warned and reprimanded to help others. He did that as a servant. And of course, he was compassionate, understood people's circumstances, and applied the truth to them. Often we read, as I try to highlight now and then through Mark, Christ was indirect in his language. He didn't say you, he didn't say they, or talked in generalities at the time. Other times he's very explicit, of course. He prayed for them, sweat tears of blood for them. And he put up with their weaknesses. And we all do this with one another. The greatness of service in God's kingdom is clearly seen when faith and love motivate your heart. Parents do this naturally. Since they love their kids, they stay up late when they're sick. They work hard for their security and for their future, for their protection. And we are called, in like manner, although not the same degree, because you're not living in my house... But the church, by analogy, is a family, and we are supposed to serve one another with respect to where God has put us in his church. That's our humility before him. So let us cast aside desires of glory and prestige if they sneak up upon us, and continue to serve one another with the talent and gift God has blessed us in this church, given by the Spirit for the glory of God. Amen and amen. Let us pray. And so, Lord, we are your people, and we are humbled before you, we pray acknowledging our limitations and our positions in your kingdom, God. And we can be frustrated at times, wanting to do things that we can't. But here, Lord, let us emphasize what we can do, how we can serve and be helpful and use what little power, however great of talents and gifts that you've given us for one another and the proper order you've given us in your word. Strengthen us, God, to this end, to stand firm in this promise that you are with us and that you are humbling us, and that we should follow the example of the Son of Man who did not come to serve, but to serve. In your name we pray, by the blood of Christ Jesus, our great servant and King. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 519, 
trust the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace writes more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face was he who taught me thus to pray and he I trust has answered prayer but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair I hope that in some favored hour at once he answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest instead of this he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part yea more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe past all the fair designs I schemed humbled my heart and laid me low Lord why is this I trembling cried will thou pursue thy worm to death tis in this way the Lord replied I answer prayer for grace and faith these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.